We acknowledge that we gather, live, play, and worship on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Stolo First Nation. When is the last time you were struck by the natural world around you? Was it something big that transcends your experience of the senses and of space? Or maybe you felt wonder at some intricate detail that caught your attention because of how small it was and how something so small could also be so important at the same time. Today, we invite you to learn from two artists who have studied in ways where they understand and put to words what in creation deserves our attention and care. In response to last month's Creative Connections, we're building on the theme of co-creating by asking questions that delve deeper into what a sincere and meaningful care of the created order actually looks like. A couple of people have actually said, like, the cause of the cause of the ecological crisis is fundamentally a spiritual problem. And it is the prevalence of human selfishness and greed and apathy. And that's what it comes down to is like, we care too much about ourselves and our own wants and our own desires to make the necessary changes that need to happen. RE is a podcast brought to you by New Heights Church, a church located in Mission, BC, focused on being church with mission in mind. We are your hosts, Greg Elford and Jess Steffick, and this is the RE podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. The first movement takes us inside the experience of a camera obscura as Brenna Mag challenges us to reimagine how paying attention to the land might have something for us that we have missed before. Brenna is a mission resident who is fascinated with how the credibility of science weaves in with the longevity and authority of Indigenous knowledge. Well, hey, Brenna. Uh, thank you for joining us today. It's uh, great to get to know you and hear a bit from you, and I'm excited for what you're going to share with us today. Um, so just to start us out, I'd love to hear a bit about you. So kind of share whatever is meaningful or worthwhile to mention to us and our listeners. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I grew up here on, as you mentioned, the unceded territory of the Stalo people, and I live, I've lived here for most of my life. I left for a little bit, but came back. And I have family that still lives here. And uh, I have a great partner and two enthusiastic, creative girls. And I've always loved making things, uh, which led to me being called to be a visual artist. And I have a garden that uh, it gets a bit unruly because I get too big for what I want to grow in there and takes over and then I can't look after it well enough so but that's always good. So Brenna what's I think what's quite unique about you is that you have this occupation like really what you do for uh, <laughs> your life is visual artist. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that. A what is visual arts and uh, B how does that kind of come out so how does that passion take shape? Okay. Um, well, generally people think of visual artists painting and drawing, um, but it's much broader than that. I tend to work with uh, what's called installation art, and that is where you can transform an entire space and it becomes an experience. And, um, and I also like printmaking um, and photography and um, work with fabric and textiles. Uh, for an example, uh, one of the projects I made was a dome made out of doilies that I collected from thrift stores. These doilies were just sort of abandoned there, and I, I was really struck by all that creative labor that women have made, um, no longer wanted. So I bought them, and I built this structure that was a dome that you could go into and experience the beauty of these doilies as a way to honor that creativity. And then I was able to link it with um, 
the credence we give to science because I classified the doilies scientifically or the way nature is classified and gave them two-part names in Latin. And I based that classification on their patterns like the star family, the garden family. Um, and then that just added a little bit more because we just treat science with such credibility that I wanted to employ that in with this labor and creative output of women. Awesome. I have one of the cyanotypes of uh, one of your doilies hanging in my house and just have such fond memories of not only seeing the dome, but experiencing, um, I remember somebody referenced it as like a hug from, a whole, I don't know, like a thousand grandmothers all at once when you're inside that, sac uh, that sacred space is how we described it. And so we're excited to hear more about what's coming out of you creatively. Um, but I'm curious why in the world you said yes to doing this, I guess, if I could ask it that way. Um, so I approached you and said, we'd love to hear, hear your perspective on how we think about caring for the natural environment or caring for the land or, and we can get into the best way of even describing that. But what, what was it about the topic that made you want to speak to this? Uh, well, my first thought was, Greg, you're very persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> but really, um, I have always enjoyed talking with you, and I thought it would be fun. And I thought um, it would be helpful for me in my art practice to uh, articulate what I've been learning and then I th also felt that I, I should share what I've been learning because I really could have used, I would have appreciated hearing about different viewpoints of the land earlier in my life. And it only seems right to share what I've learned. Great. And I'm so grateful that you would trust us enough to um, pull you in here, throw a mic in your face. <laughs> We're just glad that you're willing to um, explore the topic with us. And um, maybe we should start there. So what's the best way to even describe, um, like, should we use the words natural environment? Or when we're talking about creation care, it's kind of like caring for the, for the world that's been created or for the environment, for the land. Like what, what words do you use to describe that relationship? Yeah, uh, I used to use the word nature and environment or natural environment but um, after I had done more reading and research into sort of an indigenous perspective I came across the term the land and uh, when you gave me the questions ahead of, ahead of time I just thought oh how what's the difference between the land and nature and so I actually I called my mom uh, who's also been doing similar research and reading and uh, trying to learn. And she said, she was so clear. She was like, well, nature is an abstract concept. The land is concrete because we're standing on it. And I just thought, oh my goodness. Well, that was clear. That's exactly right. And I, I think um, with nature, it's like a, a separation. Like we're not part of nature. We're separate or above or... Whereas the land, it's like, oh, we have to, we rely on the land for everything and we're on the land and it just seemed way broader and also alive. Mm. And I feel like, like I didn't have that understanding as a kid that of course everything's alive, like the tree is alive. Like why, how does the tree not have just as much right to be here as I do? Mm. And so that's why I've turned to using the land. So when you say the land, we're not talking like people maybe shouldn't picture just dirt on the ground or something like a like a farmer maybe would talk about the land. But we're talking like ocean, would ocean kind of be part of the land, rivers? Yeah, everything. I, I just think of it as everything, this alive creation that's um, the trees, the insects, the microbiology under the soil, the rain, the snow, the oceans, everything. That's the land. And that helps me see it as much bigger and broader than just saying nature. There's definitely something different about the rootedness that comes in the way when we use the word the land. Um, that there's kind of this invitation to come back to kind of what grounds us. Yeah. 
Um, and I th- love how your mm. mom kind of put words to that. Oh. So, uh, all right. So now that we know that when we're talking about the land, we're talking about more than just dirt. Um, can you tell us about some of the ways that uh, personally you've started thinking about your relationship with this integrated land idea? Yeah. Um, I think a key key thing for me was reading uh, this book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. She is a Potawatomi First Nations, which is East Coast U.S., and she's a biologist. And her book is about the sort of braiding of traditional indigenous knowledge and scientific knowledge. And I, I had to look this up, but what she says is, Science asks us to learn about an organism, and traditional knowledge asks us to learn from an organism. And I just, I read this book and I thought, oh my gosh, I've never thought of trees or insects as my teachers. Like, the indigenous view is that all living beings are relate, we're related, and that they teach us. And I, that just sort of like, exploded my uh, interpretation of what it means to go outside and be in nature and be in the land. And I, uh, I found it so helpful because I was thinking, I think a lot about na- like at the time when I called it nature, um, because I had a garden and I wanted to learn about growing food so I could be more connected with the land. So I want to jump in for a second there, Brenna, and like I like how you're describing the braiding of things. So it's sort of not this sense that um, as someone who's in sort of a settler position, as in not an indigenous person, uh, that we recognize that we can weave things into our understanding. Um, so I even think of your dome as being an example of biology mm-hmm. and something that's a bit more like how we're describing the land. Um, And so what I'm curious about in how we weave that in, so if the land is sort of participating somehow in relationship with us in the sense that we're learning from it, that um, the natural environment starts to teach us things, what's the flip side in braiding our relationship in there? Like what what sort of, how would you view a human role in the participation in that reciprocity? The reciprocal relationship has to do with the land is always giving to me. It's a, a it's giving, giving, giving. Um, but what am I giving back to the land? And one of the things that I realized was like attention, attention to the land was a way I could give back um, and knowing the names of animals and plants and the, the processes, like just that they would teach, like, I've learned that through gardening or whatever. Um, But having a reciprocal relationship means that I'm not just taking, that I'm finding ways to spend my time and be in relationship with the land, that we are in a relationship. And I did not think that way before I'd read this book. It, It just wasn't on my radar, which is maybe like a really big failing in how we did like how colonialism happened like we just missed out on this huge opportunity so Brenna I'm just wondering if you could maybe help us um maybe bring this down a little bit to understand this relationship between um just like the natural world and then how science is involved and some things that we can learn from that maybe like an example of uh what you're really talking about here Sure. Um, I'm going to use an example from this book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, so Robin, she decided to go to school to learn botany. Would have been in the, I think, the late 70s. And she wanted to know why goldenrod, which are um, clusters of yellow flowers, look so beautiful with asters, which are purple. And they bloom together in September. And so she told the advisor, look, I want to know why these are so beautiful together. And he said, well, that's not science. And thankfully, she still went, got accepted and went in and learned, got her degrees and whatever in botany. But um, she eventually could go back 
and to, uh, to learn why these flowers look so beautiful together. And one of the reasons is um, it has to do with humans perceive yellow and purple really well and they're complementary colors. And so that was part of it. But the other creature Which that- is interesting because I don't think I would ever wear a purple shirt with <laughs> yellow pants, but I, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe after today. Yeah, I'll try maybe. it out. <laughs> you might be perceived really beautifully. Wow, good to know. <laughs> um, but he, so do bees. Bees perceive these colors. And so goldenrod and asters bloom together because they attract more pollinators. And so there is a scientific reason. And at the end of the chapter, um, she talks about how perhaps goldenrod is the scientific knowledge and asters are the traditional indigenous knowledge. And if we put them together, we have a, a bigger picture. And I love that someone went wanting to explore beauty yeah. as kind of the motivation for study and then found um, layers. <laughs> and so I'm curious, and this is maybe putting you on the spot a bit, but I'm curious as, an, as, an, as a visual artist that's learning in this vein, how are the creative instincts in you starting to wrestle with how to um, let it out, how to, how to be artistic about this? Uh, I'm going to have to just go back a little bit for when I am starting a new project because I've learned that my projects take quite a bit of time and I think that's so that they get those layers. So after I read this book, I thought, okay, I'm going to make art about having a reciprocal relationship with the lad. And I'm going to share this so that other people can find a way into having this relationship too. And then I thought, oh my goodness, that's huge. How, that's like probably multiple lifetimes and many artists working on that. That's crazy. I can't get that big. And I was just working in my studio because hard, part of the hard part of where making art is showing up. So I have to show up in my studio and I have to be prepared to make stuff that's ugly and awkward. And it feels so, I can feel the awkwardness in my body when, when the ideas are coming, but I have to just start and follow. And so I follow along. I was puttering in my studio and one afternoon, um, this idea of making a camera obscura just popped into my head. And I thought, oh, okay, I better follow this. And just so you know, a camera obscura is essentially uh, a black box with a hole and uh, light comes through the hole and projects onto a screen. And it is credited, they figure it was invented around 4th century China, but Galileo also used it to help make the telescope and the master painters used camera obscuras to get perspective and they traced the perspective that came through the, the hole in the wall and projected on the back wall, they could trace it onto their paintings. So they use these tools. So I knew about camera obscuras and I looked it up on YouTube, how to build a camera obscura. And I made one in about an hour out of cardboard and duct tape and a magnifying lens. You put a lens on the, on the hole and then the image is sharper. And you have a second box that goes inside the camera with like a transparent paper, like uh, tracing paper. And when you look through the camera, the image from the outside comes through the camera, projects onto the screen, but is inverted and upside down. And I made this camera and I went outside in my garden and I looked through it. And it, I just, it was so amazing because the, the image was softer on the edges. It could only focus on what was right in the front of the lens. And I thought, wow, this is beautiful. Uh, I need to explore this. So then I started taking that camera to a nearby ravine. And it's not a small camera. It, and it doesn't actually take a picture. I had to use my phone or a, another camera to take a picture through it. But I would go to the ravine and I'd set it up and I'd just look at um, the broad, sort of the landscape view. And then I'd go look at close-up things. And I spent almost a whole year um, looking through this camera and building other cameras. And for me, that's how my process works. I start somewhere and I just have to listen really click carefully to what the next, um, the next thread is, where I should go next. 
So Brenna, I am really interested to know, I know this is not the way that art is supposed to happen as in like, tell us what the meaning behind this is, but (laughs) I'm going to ask, what does this tell us about this reciprocal relationship with the land? Um, Because it sounds epic and having seen it, I know it is epic, Mm -hmm. but I'm wondering if you could just share what that all means to you. Yeah. So like I said, it was the idea of making some amazing reciprocal relationship art was so big that I had to really close it down. And the camera, looking through the camera obscura helped me do that because what it became about was attention. And what I learned was that, well, relationships need time and attention. So that's what I'm trying to make with this camera is to give people time and attention. And the ultimate goal is to build a a room-sized portable camera obscura that I can set up at a nearby park or somewhere in the land that people will be able to go into and look down into a table and the image will be coming in from the outside onto the table and it'll be in this dark space so it just there's just a different quality that it's hard to describe in a podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for uh, trying to put words to something that you're supposed to experience. You know, as you were describing it, I heard you d- talking about how it's a focused view, the the edges are blurry, and it's inverse, so it's like it's upside down. And I feel like sometimes some of the ways that we relate um, to maybe previous understandings of how to interrelate with the land this is a pretty good metaphor for we feel like there's a lot of blurred Mm. edges there and there's some stuff that feels upside down when we all of a sudden have a different viewpoint. Yeah. um, There's definitely a tension. And actually for me, a big part of my wrestling was like, it's such a simple technology and it's so kind of cool. How do I still make sure that it's about the land? Because, uh, we spend a lot of time on screens or and photography is so prevalent because everybody has a camera in their back pocket. Like, how am I going to, how do I lead people into an experience of the land that's in a different way? Because ultimately, that's what art does is it helps you see things in a way you've never seen before. Yeah, maybe it would be helpful for me, even I'm just thinking about my own process of when I was looking through this camera earlier um, like a word that came to mind when I was looking through this, this screen and it was just focused on like a leaf and the rest was blurred. This word like tender, like it just felt like a, a tender experience. And for me, I've never felt that kind of like tenderness towards a leaf before. That's for sure. <laughs> like maybe a cute bunny or something like that, but I've never felt tenderness towards a leaf. And so that was kind of my experience of of thinking about this focused in leaf as like, oh, like I'm thinking about you. And so I totally get what you're feeling or what you're saying about this idea of part of this reciprocal relationship is attention. And I think that's something that, I mean, I don't think I have really given thought to before, but how attention is actually a way of ha- maybe even having gratitude or having this understanding of the land in a new way that I'm just making a connection to right now. Thank you for saying gratitude because I realize I miss that. That is a huge part. Even in that book, um, Braiding Sweetgrass, it's about like about gratitude and being thankful for the gift. And because the land gives us so much that to just have the gratitude. And I think that comes when you are in, have attention and can give time right? Like in our relationships. Well, I was just, you know, and kind of playing with words a little bit here when I, in the past have heard phrases like creation care, you know, I picture people with like busy vests on walking around, picking up garbage and like having like robust recycling systems outside (laughs) of our houses and, you know, maybe like compost and like, I think I just kind of have these things I go to. But like the flip for me, just in how we were talking here, is what if care is about um, how we view something? You know, so creation care isn't caring for it in the sense of taking care of it, which comes later, but actually our feeling toward it or the way that we um, relate to it. 
-hmm. I think that attention is a really big part of caring and, and also the gratitude. And if we don't have those things, we are not going to look after it. And so it's, it's so the tension, here's where the tension comes in is like, what do I do? Like, what are the actions that I take to be in a reciprocal relationship with the land? Is it fair to say that we each have our own angle and how to fall in love with the land? Oh, uh, absolutely. I think that's, I think people definitely love the land differently. And I think even people who don't even, like me, before I even knew to read this book or, or learned more about call it, speaking of nature as the land and how I'm not separate. Um, I, st I, I think I loved it. I just didn't have the same language and I also didn't have the attention to it. Um, and so I do think people love things in different, love the land rather in different ways. And it can come out in lots of ways. Like I was just thinking about my nephew who, is a toddler and how he spent 20 minutes playing with a leaf in a puddle. That's love of the land. I think it's kind of like an unlearning. Mm -hmm. It's like I have to unlearn these values that just were sort of you absorb in the culture of the settler and I have to relearn what I wish I had been learning as a child, which obviously I think was there because we were all four-year-olds that played in puddles probably, right? But I have to relearn that that's a relationship. Well, I think that as I picture people that would be listening to this or just people in general, I think that each of us, and maybe this is unique to just some of us, but I have a feeling that most folks have had experiences with what you're naming the land. Oh, that when they are in your camera, there's an intuition that might kick in where they already have an appreciation, but they just need to be reminded to pay attention. So Brenna, just to kind of close us off here, how would you encourage those of us and those of the listeners who um, see creation um, or the land as having a creator that's intimately involved and uh, kind of a part of the process what what would you say to those people? And maybe even if you have some like things that we could do, I would love to hear that. Um, well, I think spending time out in the land with the great mystery, which is how I like to sometimes think of the creator, um, and without an agenda, like that, I think that that has worked really well for me. Also. Um, one thing I started doing after I read this book was greeting the day. So I'll, in the morning when I make tea or coffee, then I'll go out on my balcony and say hello to the day, <laughs> which is, I never thought I'd be doing something like that. And then I also, not every night, but we'll say goodnight to the land. And it's just uh, an act of kind of reminding myself and, and showing my gratitude um, the other thing I've done is I've, I've been trying to think more about where water comes from when I turn on the tap. So when I do the dishes, I have been imagining the snow or the rain falling on the trees and it fall, uh, trickling into the ground that feeds the lake where we get our water because it's just so easy to turn on the tap and not think about that process. Um, another thing that I've found helpful is um, offering my thanks when I go into the garden. Now, and this is really hard because I forget all the time. I'll go out to get some lettuce and I just go get it. And I come inside and I make the salad and then I go, oh shoot, I should have said thank you. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just like, it's really a practice because I forget. But just trying to have that awareness that it's a gift, that the lettuce is a gift. And then the, a key thing that's really helped me too is learning the names of pl plants and animals and trees because it's, I think it's pretty hard to care for something that we don't know the names of. One other thing that I found helpful and sort of that led me into this learning was um, eating foods in season and really 
relishing that when the strawberries are ready and just enjoying that beautiful part of June, which is strawberries and, and so on with the other seasons. Well, we are so grateful that you would include us in some of your musings around these things and then to open us up to some of the actual um, daily practices that can cultivate in us. Because, you know, we you know, maybe it, maybe we don't think of the land actually hearing the things that we say, mm-hmm. um, but maybe what's happening inside of us for saying them changes how we respond to the land. And they certainly, the land certainly would experience that. <laughs> so, so for some feedback, the way that you have talked about this has encouraged me not out of guilt, but out of kind of an excitement mm. to try some things that would um, help me experience something that maybe I'm missing. So thank you for that angle. I appreciate that. And thank you for trusting us enough to come and do this with us. We can't wait to stand in your camera. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for you to come see it. Come home, This is The Re-Podcast, and today we're inviting two artistic thinkers to help us reimagine the reason for and the tone with which we approach an understanding of the land. Our second guest is a teacher at the Environmental School in Maple Ridge who describes a fresh way of learning that is rooted in holistic experience and long-term Indigenous models. Chris Mormon invites us to step into wonder, sitting, gratitude, and generosity. All right. Well, welcome, Chris. We are so glad that you're here and excited to get to do this with you. I think back to lots of conversations we've had in person, and so I'm thrilled we get to share it with other people. So we want to focus in on the environmental school to start with. Uh, For folks that haven't heard of an environmental school, can you describe a little bit what it looks like? Yeah, environmental school is a group of students learning outside um, all the time. So they're outside all day, every day, um, learning from the place primarily. Uh, there's this art, our particular environmental school um, is kind of unique because it's set up um, in two different ways. So students are in uh, age groups, but they're also in cohorts, or sorry, in clans, which is multi-age groupings of K to, right now it's K to nine. Cool. So we're talking like there's five-year-olds all the way up to 14-year-olds kind of thing? Yeah. yeah. And is it, it's growing another year each year kind of thing? Um, the idea is to eventually get to grade 10, um, but then there would be more interaction between one of the local high schools, Thomas Haney, and the high school, environmental school. So kids. this is, uh, just for our people listening, this is kind of in Maple Ridge generally, or you move around a little bit? Uh, Maple Ridge, Pitt Meadows, mm-hmm. yeah. And yes, so that's another important part of it is we're not always in one place. So we move around from, you know, forests to lakes to parks to, you know, maybe a, a place in the city. We usually go to Cottonwood Bike Park. So there'll be three weeks where all the kids bring their bikes and they're just learning. Um, you know, they're, they're, they've got a coach there who's teaching them to ride, but then they're also learning, you know, math through ratios of the um, teeth on the on the chain wow. <laughs> chain ring and yeah. So Sorry, I just have to jump in here because like thinking back to my impression of school and what you're describing, I'm, I'm a little bit upset that that wasn't offered to me as a kid. Like, I, do you think that kids are learning as much like as they would in a classroom or is, it, is there a lot more? More. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think <clears throat> maybe not, not a whole lot more in terms of what, what you might think of as the, you know, ministry curriculum. Uh, we do 
teach, you know, the same curriculum that uh, every other school does, but I think they're learning more in terms of like practical skills, social, emotional well-being. Um, I mean, just the fact of being outside all day, every day in the forest by the rivers, like they're going to be learning all kinds of things. I'm curious, like what, just, just thinking about like being a parent and wondering like when it's uh, a BC super wet, windy day, like is the morale uh, a challenge? It, it can be a challenge. Yeah, for sure. Like to teachers and kids when you're on your, you know, 27th day of rain and it's been like four degrees for the last, you know, 10 of them. Um, it can be a challenge, but that was one of the things I was most shocked at when I first experienced it was like how little the kids complain, how used to it they are. I'm sorry to press in here, but like, does all like when they're writing and they have notebooks, like, aren't they just all soaked if you have no shelter? Like, are there That's, tents yeah. or? Are yeah, there... there are tents. Okay. And that is also a challenge, <laughs> writing in the rain. That is so different from my picture of school. Yeah, I'm really intrigued. I was just going to say, it's pretty amazing. Like, I sent, before I was a teacher there, I sent both my kids there, uh, just because of what I knew and understood of it and felt like it's just the best place for maybe not for everybody, but for certain kids, it's yeah, it doesn't get better than that. Lots of kids are sent, you know, are, you know, we try, they try the environmental school because their kids are having trouble. Um, that was one of my reasons, our reasonings for sending Kai there was, you know, he wasn't doing, you know, as well as we felt he could in the traditional school. Um, he has ADHD and, uh, you know, he's still Kai at the environmental school, but it's been, um, it's been said, I can't remember who, but, uh, you know, people who come visit the school and say, you know, we can't tell who are the kids who have a coding or we can't tell who the kids who are supposed to be, you know, TOCs will come and be like, oh, I don't even know who that kid is who's, you know, supposedly has such a hard time. Wow. Yeah, that that's kind of telling, isn't it? Yeah, and I think a lot of it is just, you know, they get tons of exercise. I come home with, you know, 10,000 steps every day just because of, you know, being out running around. So that kind of uh, brings me to our next kind of thought, which you've touched on somewhat, but um, I'm interested just to know what some of the philosophy or rationale um, behind all of this is that really drew you to this type of both learning for your kids, but then also to the way that you want to teach and kind of experience life? Um, the philosophy and rationale that I love about it is uh, it's primarily experiential learning. So, you know, we have no textbooks. Uh, the learning comes from the, like that's the meaning of place-based is you're learning from in and with the place um, so all the curriculum that you know other schools you know teach to or to you know say oh I'm going to teach this next and this is how I'm going to teach it we do it backwards so we design we're like okay what's here look around the place experience we have you have to experience and know the place first and then ask you know what kind of learning can be taken from here or um, it's very student led. So the stu kids will get, you know, super interested in a hawk nest or something like that, that they find. And, oh, well, let's go learn about hawk nests and what other learning can we, where can we go from that? Well, that, I mean, that's the other thing that I really love about it is it's not as much of a, you know, teacher, student, I'm imparting my knowledge to you. It's we're both learning from this place together. So Chris, kind of what you're talking about is reminding me a little bit of what we've touched on a couple months ago um, in terms of kind of the indigenous understanding of learning from the land and connecting with the land um, in the sense that, I mean, that's really what you're doing to educate is connecting with the land. So I'm wondering if you could just explain to us maybe a bit of 
um, that philosophy and how it touches down in the way you approach education or what you've learned in that regard? So we're really trying to embody as a school um, the first people's principles of learning. And these are ways that uh, first peoples have traditionally you know, approach learning and what's important and how to go about it um, for, you know, generations and generations. So the first one is learning ultimately supports the well-being of the self, the family, the community, the land, the spirits, and the ancestors. Uh, then learning is holistic, reflexive, reflective, experiential, and relational focused on connectedness, on reciprocal relationships, and a sense of place. Third is learning involves recognizing the consequences of one's actions. Fourth, learning involves generational roles and responsibilities. Learning recognizes the role of indigenous knowledge. Learning is embedded in memory, history, and story. Learning involves patience and time. Learning requires exploration of one's identity. And finally, learning involves recognizing that some knowledge is sacred and only shared with permission and or in certain situations. Wow, that like you can see how that would be a jumping off point for about 12 of these chats we could have. But like I, I was just listening to that list and thinking to myself um, how many times I've heard or said even when I was a student like why like none of this is going to matter for my life you know like do you do you have kids saying stuff like that at uh, the environmental school or is it just an easy objection to answer last week we were studying lichen and yes somebody was Sorry, like what, what is that i don't know <laughs> <laughs> lichen is uh, a symbiotic relationship between fungi and algae that grows on trees and is uh, you've for sure seen it before um looks it's kind of like moss a little bit often gray or green but you know we're out there taking pictures of it with our ipads and learning the different you know the three t different types and one kid's like what <laughs> use does like and have you know for my life but it's you know he you're learning you know you're learning how to learn you're learning to be observant you're learning to um you know be to draw detailed you're learning to be a real scientist right not a scientist who's learning out of a textbook you're learning what science is is observation um hypothesis research yeah so i mean you're saying a lot of things that are even new to me um, as someone growing up in a traditional schooling environment in a sense. But I'm just wondering for you, um, like you seem to definitely have a lot of knowledge in this area. Is this, is this new for you or what's kind of been your learning journey to get to this place of having these new ideas about education itself and then also kind of ideas about um, the land and how we should be in relation to it? Or, or even if there's another way to speak of the land or what you've yeah. learned in that sense. Yeah, it's been a long journey. And um, I could start when I was a kid and I was homeschooled. When I was 10, we moved out to a hobby farm in Maple Ridge. I had pigs that I cared for and, you know, all my siblings had different animals. And so moving from the suburbs out to, you know, a little more rural was probably my real first connection to the land. I'd say the next point came like way further on um, when I took a permaculture design course. And for anybody who doesn't know what permaculture is, it's the it's a combination of the words permanent and culture. It's a design science aimed at working with nature instead of, you know, against it or or, you know, ignoring it. Um, through very careful observation um, to create like regenerative, regenerative, not just sustainable, but regenerative systems and a 
culture that could, you know, theoretically live on indefinitely. It has three core principles, one being care of people, the next being care of the earth, and the next being um, redistribution of of like, of excess resources, um, or just sharing, sharing the excess that's created. So um, I, the permaculture class sort of launched a bit of a journey, and, and you had this interest in the environmental school. Did you, did you do any other learning that prepared you for what you're doing now? So the principal who started the environmental school started a, or recognized the need to train teachers in this different pedagogy, recognizing the school's not going to last if we don't have teachers who understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. So he started a learning cohort for teachers who are interested and somehow managed with the district to make it a requirement that you have this um, teaching certificate, you know, place-based ecological teaching certificate to, in order to teach at the environmental school. He ran that for two years and I, took it the first year, got my certificate and loved it so much and just the community and the like-minded people that I ended up taking it the second year again just to, you know, learn more and and a few other people did as well. And after, I think, two or three years, he ended up convincing SFU to, to start a place-based ecological master's program and so, so, so you actually took your master's there. So I took my master's, yeah, at SFU with these instructors who had started the environmental school with Clayton, the principal. So did you do any of your master's in the way that you're teaching kids? Or was it? All of it. <laughs> One of the themes or, you know, activities that we constantly did was we were supposed to find, we had to find a microsite which is like a, you know, at the environmental school, we call it, we call them quiet spots, but a place where you just go sit some, some place that calls you and that you can observe um, throughout the seasons and times of day and just go back to and really develop a relationship with. You're almost like, like treating the land like it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a thing, like you're giving it a personality. Is that intentional or is, is that kind of part of the, the philosophy that I don't know if the environmental school itself would be, would, you know, say that I don't want to speak for the environmental school or its philosophy in that way. But for me, I would, I would say that's really important that students are developing a relationship and respect for the land, kind of like you would a person and, and like that in a very real way, the land is alive and is you you can be in relationship with it and it's you know sensing you and um you know one indigenous idea is that the land everything has a spirit and you know i i, I don't think that's wrong um so i think for the kids to or anybody, I would say, I would say like having a microsite would be my number one, like, what can I do to develop a relationship with the land or what, how, how can I, you know, be more in touch or connected? I would say, go find yourself a place that you love to be, or just a place that's convenient that you can return to again and again and develop a love for it. Like one of, one of the reasons I got into it was I heard this a quote, I think it was by David Orr, or maybe David Sobel, but that you can't ask somebody, you can't ask a kid, a child to save something, or a human t- in general, to save something before they love it. And so they have to come to love it before they care enough to want to save it. And I just think, how how do you get a play, somebody to love the earth? They have to spend time in it with it regularly i think that's like kind of perfect for where we're hoping to kind of go this month there's so many huge issues environmental issues you know everybody talks about climate change but um 
there's there's been a scientific approach to trying to solve these problems and what i have come to believe and blanking on his name right now but um <clears throat> a couple of people have actually said like the cause of the cause of the ecological crisis is fundamentally a spiritual problem and it is the prevalence of human selfishness and greed and apathy and that's what it comes down to is like we care too much about ourselves and our own wants and our own desires to make the necessary changes that need to happen the problems are so huge and so systemic that it's easy to feel overwhelmed and feel like oh i'm just one person like what can i do and i think i think it's like you have to work on that spiritual problem in yourself and and spread it and i was thinking and working with like what are the answers or the antidotes or what can you do to to solve those problems like within yourself and society in general and <clears throat> i think that cultivate intentional cultivation of number one a sense of wonder which leads to a sense of gratitude and you can intentionally cultivate that I do in my class with my class and I'll, I can tell you in a minute how I do that. Um, but the third is uh, gratitude leads to generosity or reciprocity and wanting to give back. And yeah, so I, I think, I think in a way those microsites actually, or sit spots are a way to cultivate all three of those. So it's a practical thing where you can go, um, you know, it's just, if you open your mind and open your heart, nature is amazing. And there's, you know, wonder and awe to be had in any place. And you just have to look for it and be open to it. And, um, yeah. So one of the things that I do with my class is we either often we'll go to our sit spots or just go find a quiet place to just sit and be for two minutes. You know, it's not a long time, but, and then we come together and at the beginning of the year, I read a kid's book called Giving Thanks that is based on the uh, Hadosani um, Six Nations Thanksgiving address. And it's uh, actually Robin Wall Kimmerer, who I know we were talking about earlier, um, has a section in her book, um, Braiding Sweetgrass, about the Thanksgiving address and how important it is um, to combat like greed and selfishness. Um, Chris, just to bring some clarity, I've never actually heard of this Thanksgiving address that you're talking about. I'm wondering if you could maybe explain that a little bit for, for me and for our listeners. The Thanksgiving address is basically giving thanks to and for, but to the to the land in all its various manifestations. So thank you to the grass and to the animals and, you know, for what, what we get from you or what you give to us. So at the beginning of the year, I had the, my students write and draw just a picture of, you know, what something they're thankful for. And then we shared it. And then I read them this book called Giving Thanks, which is adapted from the Thanksgiving Address. Thank you, uh, green grasses that are, you know, soft on our feet. And thank you, fruits and berries. Thank you, trees. Thank you, birds of the air. Thank you, clean water. Uh, and it goes on, you know, very beautiful and poetic. I read it to the, to the kids and then had them each pick a page that they wanted to read. And so the next time we did it, instead of me reading it, the kids read the Thanksgiving address and... Uh, and then they became responsible to read their own page every time. And eventually just naturally they memorized it. And so now we'll like go out into the forest and, and start our day with, you know, the kids just reciting the Thanksgiving address. Thank you. Um, you know, thank you. Cool winds. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty magical actually. Like last week, you know, the, another class had built a fort out in the forest and we, 
got in, got into the fort and you know recited the Thanksgiving address. And now if kids are absent, you know they all know each other's, and so like they pretty much you know ha- have it memorized. And at one point before before we started, I was like, so you know we keep doing this every day and or you know multiple times a week, and you know what are we actually learning here? What have we learned? Why are we doing the same activity over and over again? And the kids themselves came up with like, oh, we learned, you know, we were learning to read. We were learning vocabulary. We were learning to memorize. We were learning to speak in public and enunciate and and speak loudly. And we were learning gratitude. We were learning to like actually feel the feel the thankfulness as we were saying, saying it. And um, so so just that idea that they are aware of their own learning and all the learning that comes out of this one um, little activity. But I think the most important part of the learning is them being conscious of, you know, everything that is a gift to them and to all of us and expressing gratitude to it. Well, Chris, um, I find that really inspiring and really appreciate the way that you're inviting us into the way you're seeing this. And I think there's something that we can learn from your perspective. And um, on that note, there's uh, a community that's connected to our podcast that listens. And I'm curious if you were to encourage sort of a church community or anyone that that views uh, the reality of a, of a creator who's created this natural environment, um, how would you prompt them or um, encourage them, I guess, to be conscious of the way that they interact with the natural world in light of the things you're saying? I think a lot of the damage that's done to the natural world is done unintentionally and through ignorance. And I think with our access to information now it's harder to be ignorant about the impact that you're having on the land you know whether it's here or across the ocean um, mostly through what we consume and buy and uh, how we decide to eat but I would ask the question is it possible to love the creator while at the same time doing harm to creation and I think the answer is no. And uh, so for me, like a big learning in all of this is a reverence for creation itself and the idea that the, you know, the creation itself is holy and valuable and like a manifestation of the creator. And by knowingly, you know, harming it in one way or another or not actively taking care of it, um, I don't think you're practicing what you preach. (laughs) Like we talk about some of the indigenous practice and some of the attitudes that come from that history and that um, community, that holistic sort of environment that people grow up in. But I'm just curious how you think, maybe like to, to say settlers as the alternative community, have deviated so far from what at one point must have been a relationship with the land somewhere way back in their history, especially when like urban cultures have come out of sort of a more rural culture. What do you think the progression away from something that revered the land and participated or had relationship with the land, how do you think that happened? Honestly, I think a big part of it was Christianity and the idea that, you know, God gave the earth to humans to, to Adam or, you know, to humans to do with as, you know, as they choose, basically. I mean, that was maybe not explicitly, but that's kind of what I got from it when I was growing up, you know, in the church with a father who's a pastor is like you know we we are at the top of the hierarchical structure of value and you go down through various life forms and um 
and the earth was giving given to us you know for our benefit and i think as you this is maybe not the only but i think it's definitely played into it being the foundation of western culture um and so we didn't see the earth in a relation you know anything other than a commodification and i think it's got you know it's gotten worse to the to the point where we um we talk we talk about ourselves as consumers as if it's a good thing and you know we're eating it up we're tearing it up to you know and throwing it away yeah maybe even to use that like the language in genesis like overemphasizing like the dominion part without yeah. realizing the responsibility part well and that that i think is either a mistranslation or yeah. a misinterpretation of what of the original intent of that 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 it was more caretakers and caretaker means like leaving it as good or better than it was when yeah. you found it totally um, so but i think that that's that that misinterpretation or misunderstanding maybe intentionally uh has led to this alienation from the land and you have to be alienated it from it in order to treat it that way it doesn't take long to look at how the connection to the land or to the most basic things in our understanding of how to live and operate when they become entitled it it acts like a lens for how we start to see all sorts of things and so I can see the value of something like the environmental school that are shaking us loose of this sort of trap we've fallen into, that even in the most um, essential partner that we have, our, the created world or our natural environment, we've sucked the, <laughs> the life out of it and consumed it for ourselves. And yeah, when we put it that way, it's, uh, it can be pretty convicting pretty fast. So... Um, thanks for that. For sure. Is that what you say <laughs> after sure. something? <laughs> <laughs> something to chew on. Yeah. But I, but I like how it's not this like this hopeless like doom. Like yeah, you really screwed it up. Sorry. Like okay, that sucks. It's kind of like this reworking of like man, things have gone askew. But like there's so much room to make difference and take responsibility and and change things about the way we're we're viewing the land. And I think it starts with that that relationship that you talked about this seeing the land as both a, a reflection and like a, a work of art that's been like created and as something that we get to enjoy and like be in relationship and see as a partner in life so I feel like that's like actually kind of hopeful all right well thank you so much Chris for taking time for sitting in this cold garage uh six feet away <laughs> and uh like I don't know if there's um a learning that we can take from this space other than that I maybe have too much stuff in my garage, <laughs> which is probably a learning that's more on point than I realize. But uh, we're just so grateful that you uh, would open up your world to us and trust us with how to share your perspective. And um, yeah, I think you've given us definitely some things to chew on. Thanks for having me. I hope some of it's usable. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Wow. That was good. If I come back tomorrow and every day patiently. All the music today has been written, composed, and played by Chris Mormon. We close with his song, The Visiting. Thank you for listening, and a special thanks to Chris and Brenna for their expertise and vulnerability. Thank you to our silent sponsor and our very supportive church community. Join us again in two weeks when the Re podcast invites some more perspective on how the topic of creation care might touch down in our own lives. This has been episode 11 of the Re podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. <laughs> <laughs>